This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 12 I've thought of you so often. The summer following Abigail's death was the happiest Thorn had ever known. She woke up each morning expectantly to the crow of a very young rooster. Always before she had protested the cock crow and the enforced early rising of the farm. But now she sprang joyously from bed as though the summer day were not long enough to hold all the delight it promised. Sometimes she was dressed and roaming the woods before Millie had her breakfast fire started. Berries were ripe now, and nothing, to Richard's thinking, equaled a bowl of blackberries, fresh with dew to begin the morning meal. Never since early childhood, when parental love cushioned her against reality, had Thorne lived in such security. The hand-to-mouth existence of her carnival days, succeeded by the constant threats of Abigail, had so inured her to anxiety that for a time it was hard for her to realize that she no longer had anything to worry about. Not until after school was out and Judith had returned to the city, and it was known for the fact that she would not be coming back, was Thorne able to accept the permanency of her happiness. Even then, her first thought on waking was a swift, imploring prayer. Please, God, let it last. Don't take it away. Let it be like this always. Sometimes remembering Abigail, she would add, Don't let me be glad she's dead. But if I am, please forgive me. Remembering Judith, she would not pray at all. Sometimes there was the faintest shadow of a cloud on the clear blue of her horizon, like the morning Ricky knocked upon her door while she was braiding her hair. She had inherited the bird's-eye maple room upon Judith's departure, and it gave her a wonderful feeling of grown-up importance to have a door upon which people must knock and to be able to say, come in to her former bedfellows. The little boys still called upon her to button them up before going down to breakfast. Ooh, look what Miss Judith left behind, cried Raji, who had followed his brother into the room. He was exploring the mysteries of the bureau and had discovered a cut glass bottle with a rubber ball attached. When squeezed, it filled the air with delicious scent. Thorne, intent on connecting Ricky's panty waist with his drawers, looked up. Where did you get that, Raji? In the little cubby. Didn't you know it was there? She had not seen it until that moment. Let me have it, please. No, it's not yours. It's mine. I found it. Raji clutched his treasure to his stomach. It's not yours, said Ricky with an air of superior judgment. It belongs to Miss Judith, and you better put it back where you found it. She won't like it when she comes back if she finds her scent bottle gone. Thorne's face blanched. She's not coming back, she said quickly. 
Ricky said smugly. What you want to bet? What do you mean? Asked Thorn. The young man, who still had trouble with buttons and buttonholes, looked wise with the newly acquired wisdom of seven years. Jesse Moffat bets she's coming back. I heard him talking to Uncle Will. She never would have left that bottle if she wasn't coming back. Thorn stared at the inoffensive bottle as though it had been a sharp instrument in which she had inadvertently cut herself. There were other storm warnings from Millie. Perhaps it was only the black woman's superstition. Perhaps it was the irritability of advancing age and rheumatism which made Thorn's suddenly released spirits the subject of gloomy foreboding. As she watched the girl who had once been afraid to lift her voice, who had slipped through the house like a shadow, now running in and out as she pleased, laughing, shouting, playing games, Millie's dark speculations took voice. Steppin' mighty free and easy now Miss Abby's dead, ain't ya? Better watch out. The words still more the tone of a voice cast a pall on Thorne's young gaiety. What do you mean, Millie? Bad luck dancing on a grave. The two were alone in the big black kitchen. It was after supper and Thorne was helping with the dishes so that Miss Anne could sit on the porch under the June roses. The evening was lush with fragrance and by and by Richard was going down to the crossroads for the mail and Thorne was going with him. The world was right and good and brimming with promise until Millie spoke. I'm not dancing on a grave. Why would you say a thing like that? Good luck don't last that comes from somebody dying, warmed the old woman grimly. Better not act too happy. She won't like it. But she's gone, Millie. What I do can't bother her now. The turbaned head nodded gloomily. That's what I mean. She's gone, and we don't want her coming back. The family black face was frightening in the murky shadows of the room. But outdoors, the sky was red with sunset, and from beyond the open windows, Richard's whistle set the earth back on its axes. Thorne flung down her dish towel and ran out to join him, glad to escape from the dusky kitchen and Millie's baleful croakings. As they crossed the side yard, they heard buggy wheels and voices, topped by a high, youthful giggle. Thorne recognized the giggle. It's the Turners. Nancy said they'd be over this evening. If she sees me, I'll have to go back. Richard seized her hand and drew her behind a clump of lilacs. Together they waited, like two conspirators. While the Turner Surrey passed along the lane and deposited Kate and Hugh Turner, their three children, and Hugh's 15-year-old sister Nancy on the Timberley lawn. When the visitors had disappeared around the corner of the front porch, the truants ran swiftly down the slope toward the shelter of the woods. Remember, we didn't see them, cautioned Richard. If they're still here when we come back, we must be quite surprised to find we have company. His mischievous wink bellied the droll gravity of his tone, and Thorne laughed rapturously. Oh, it was fun to be running away from only Nancy Turner, to have no greater fear than the danger of being caught by that harmless giggler. 
It was good to be clasping Richard's hand, unafraid of watchful eyes peering from the window. In a flash of clarity, Thorne realized that all the inexplicable joy of this summertime was born of the freedom to clasp Richard's hand. It was dim and cool beneath the beech trees, like the aisles in an empty church. As they went on their pace, slackened. The hushed privacy of the leafy world was conducive to intimate talk. I don't know what you see in Nancy Turner, Richard began. You never used to play together, but now it seems everywhere I turn I hear that giggle or see that toothy smile. She's too old a chum for you, Cricket. Nancy was a plump, overdeveloped girl for her age, and so obviously boy-struck that her elders found her society slightly wearing. She likes to talk to me, Thorne explained. What about? Oh, everything. He frowned. Nancy was beginning to have beau, a fact which he thoroughly disapproved. Half the fun being in love, said Thorne sagely, is having an interested listener. He stopped short in the path. What do you know about being in love? Nothing. That's what Nancy says. And you're an interested listener, I suppose. Very. He made an unintelligible sound that might have been a growl or a cough. He was suddenly very much out of temper. Didn't want that feather-brained sister of Hugh Turner's filling Thorne's head with her silly ideas. He wondered just what she had told Thorne. For that matter, he wondered just how much the little nitwit had to tell. She had been going about with the Henderson boy, and young Chet Henderson was known as a wild one. Richard couldn't imagine what Hugh and Kate were thinking of not to clamp the lid down on Miss Nancy. But that wasn't his concern. Thorne was his concern, and he wasn't going to have her spoiled. She was sweet and fresh and innocent, and he was going to keep her that way. He did not want her changed, ever. He grew quite warm thinking about it and looked down at her half fearfully as though expecting to find some change already occurred. When did you start putting your hair up? He demanded, as though it were the first time he had seen the dark braids wound about her head. I've been wearing it this way all summer, said Thorne. It's cooler. Isn't that the way Nancy wears hers? Yes. Do you like it? His answer was to extricate the two shell pins that held the braids and toss them away. Then with his fingers, he combed the thick, loose plates into their accustomed curly tangle. You shouldn't have thrown the pins away, said Thorne. They belong to Nancy. She looked at him anxiously. Are you angry? I didn't think you'd mind. In the twilight of the beaches, her face was a dim, pale shape. He took it between his hands as though to see it better. He could no more be angry with her than with his own hand or heart, but he was troubled. She was growing so fast and he had no knowledge of how to deal with a girl who was growing up. He would have talked to his mother about her, but that he recalled what Judith had told him about Miss Anne's belief that Thorne would do better in Kentucky with his older sister. If his mother held that opinion, it would not do to portray his own uneasiness. Doubtless, his other sisters agreed with her. He had no one to turn to in his perplexity, unless, inevitably, his reasoning brought him to the point round which his thoughts had milled all summer, Judith. Over and over, he had relived their talk by the kitchen fire. He realized that he had practically committed himself to marry her if he ever married anyone. 
But this summer of absolute freedom had been so to his liking that he had decided he did not want to marry again. He had persuaded himself that he could manage his household without any woman's help when this troublesome business about Thorn obtruded and destroyed his peace of mind. I'm not angry with you, Cricket. I just don't like you shooting up so fast. You're growing like a spring colt. Am I? (laughs) She laughed happily. He said jealously. You sound as though you were glad. Of course I'm glad, aren't you? He did not answer. He only stood stroking her hair. As though his hand upon her head could postpone growth and some dimly foreseen heartache. I don't want to be a child all my life, said Thorn. I'd like to grow up right now, this very summer. Another speech like that and I'll turn you across my knee. He gave her a little shake as he released her. They went on in companionable silence through the deepening twilight of the woods. All about them, the unseen life of feathered, bird, and creeping things grew vocal with the fall of the evening. A squirrel barked just over their heads from some hidden pool of rainwater came the croupy plaint of a frog. A thrush cleared his throat in a thicket, and on all sides rose the pulsing croon of katydids. It was the time of all others. Thorn loved to be in the woods. She was sorry when they came out of the grove and crossed the road to the store. Timberley's store was kept by an elderly bachelor named Witherspoon, who lived on the premises with his family of cats, and never closed up till bedtime. On mail days, Tuesdays and Fridays, he never went to bed until a late hour because, as sure as he did, some tardy customer would bang on his door and demand that he open up and give him his paper. The mail consisted mostly of periodicals. Those who could afford it subscribed to at least one, sometimes two, weekly papers. Those who couldn't afford subscriptions borrowed from their neighbors. The Tomlinsons took both the Indianapolis and Terre Haute papers and after reading them, passed them on to the Shooks. As Richard and Thorne entered the store, Henry Shook hailed them from his seat on the sugar barrel. Our papers have come, Richard. Here's the express. He tossed over one of the newspapers as blandly as though it had been his own. You can run through that while I see what's doing in Indianapolis. The room was filled with men, newspapers, tobacco smoke, and conversation. Richard was greeted from all sides. Thorne edged her way to the row of milk boxes at the back of the room, where Mr. Witherspoon was still sorting the contents of the two sacks labeled U.S. Mail. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Garcy. Wonder what widow Garcy's brother in Ohio's writing her about. Oh, hello, Thorn. How are you this evening? Fine, thanks. Want me to put that in Mrs. Garcy's box? 
Might as well. Mr. Witherspoon surrendered the envelope dubiously. Always hate to see people get letters. So apt to have bad news in them. Why? Thorne was interested. Why should letters apt to have bad news? His reason was cogent. No point in writing if things are going well. Thorne had never considered it in this light before. The remark excited her imagination. Mr. Witherspoon's moroseness had always fascinated her. Now it was explained. At some point in his life, he had undoubtedly received bad news in a letter. That was why he lived alone, like an embittered old maid, with his cat Sheba and her occasional offspring. Well, I'll be switched. Here is one for you, Thorn. Thorn looked up blankly. The storekeeper was holding out a square, white envelope gingerly, as though distrusting its contents. The subscription, plain as faultless penmanship could make it, was Miss Thorne Tomlinson, Timberley Farm, Woodridge, Indiana. Now who could be writing letters to an innocent young thing like you? wondered Mr. Witherspoon darkly. Thorne knew only too well whose hand had penned her name with that beautifully shaded stroke. She had seen that writing on blackboards too often to mistake it. The sight of it now gave her a queer, sick feeling in the pit of her stomach. The storekeeper, mistaking her change of color, said kindly, There now, don't be scared kind of what I said about bad news. Nobody could be writing you bad news because you ain't got any folks to have things happen to. Go ahead, take it, see who it's from. I know who it's from, said Thorne and slipped the letter into her pocket. Aren't you going to read it? Asked Mr. Weatherspoon. He was disappointed. I will. Later. Said Thorne and went out on the side porch where Sheba and her daughters were making their evening toilets. Here Richard found her some time later when he was inquired of the storekeeper what had become of her. Did Thorne get a letter? Who from? She didn't open it in here. Was the somewhat injured reply. But Thorne was not reading a letter when Richard joined her. She was sitting on the porch step so motionless that Sheba's kittens had made a bed of her wide-flung skirt. Hello, here you got a letter. Richard disposed the sleeping cats and sat down beside her. Leaning forward, he peered into her face and sharp anxiety seized him. Had someone connected with her old life? That good-for-nothing prestigitator, Pete McGraw, to be exact, communicated with the child after all this time? Who's it from, Cricket? I... Haven't opened it yet. In her eyes was a look he had not seen there since Abigail died. His own fears immediately became facts. Listen, Thorn, no matter what's in that letter, you've nothing to worry about. There's not a person in this world, now, who has the power to hurt you. So give me the letter. If someone's trying to annoy you, I'll send him about his business. But when he reached for the envelope, her fingers tightened upon it. An oil lamp flared in the room behind them. He saw tears upon her cheek. Thorn, what's the matter? Nothing! I'm going home! She sprang up suddenly like a young, wild thing and began walking rapidly toward the road. He had to hurry to catch up to her. Wait, Thorn, you're crying. I'm not! She crossed the road and started running. Wildly, she fled towards the woods, hearing him gain upon her and ceased 
with a foolish panic. When he caught her, she screamed and struggled in his grasp, beating his chest with small, ineffectual fists while her face contorted with tears. Thorn, what's come over you? We're not going back through the woods. It's too dark. Here, take my handkerchief. Your face is a sight. You shouldn't rub your eyes with hands that have been petting dirty cats. The mild scolding restored her wonderfully. She accepted the handkerchief, used it, and returned it with a casual, Thanks. As coolly as though her sudden tantrum had never occurred. But as they went on their way, she proffered the letter with a gesture slightly apologetic. Here, you can read it if you want to. The large, elegant black script was perfectly clear in the fading light. At sight of it, Richard was relieved. Well, no carnival tramp wrote that. It looks like a woman's hand. Who could it be from? Thorn gave him a sidelong glance. Don't you know? It's not my sister Annie's scribble. He looked extremely innocent. I can't think of any other feminine correspondence with Timberly, unless... He stopped as his eyes fell on the postmark. Thorn, watching him, saw color rise beneath his summer tan. It's from Terra Hoot, he said, rather too carelessly. Maybe it's from Miss Amory. I'm sure it is, said Thorn and quickened her pace. Here, wait, don't you want to read it? It's too dark. Nonsense, it's quite light now that we're clear of the trees. All right then, you read it, said Thorn so shortly that he might have wondered at her tone had he not been so intent on learning what had prompted Judith Amory to write to her former pupil. It was an innocuous missive, quite brief. He read it in silence first, just in case it bore reference to any conversation the writer might have had with Mr. Richard Tomlinson. Dear Thorn, I've thought of you so often since leaving Timberley and always with the pleasantest memories of our companionship. How is the reading coming on? I can't chide you if you find little time for it these long summer days. There are shut-in hours next winter for Shakespeare and Dickens, and Timberley must be at its loveliest in June. I envy you, my dear. The city is so hot, and the work I am doing, tutoring for fall examinations, so tiresome. I long for your cool green woods, but the next best thing would be a visit from you telling me about them. If any of the family should chance to be coming to the city, do ask them to bring you to see me. With kindest regards to all, I remain your friend, Judith Amory. Well, what a nice letter, was Richard's comment as he folded the sheet of notepaper after reading it aloud. A very thoughtful thing for a schoolteacher to keep in touch with her old pupils. Thorn looked at him in eloquent silence. Her futile anger melted before the colossal stupidity of man. To her, the purpose of the letter was so obvious, it seemed that Richard must see that the woman had used the device to recall her own image in his mind. That she had succeeded, a glance at his face would attest. Even in the gathering darkness, a kindling glow was visible. When they came in sight of Timberley, Thorn ran ahead of him up the slope to the house. Fireflies starred the dusk, and the young Tomlinsons and Turners were chasing them over the lawn. She shouted to the children and threw herself into the sport, threw herself back into childhood. From the precarious ledge of adult reasoning on which she had teetered. What if Judith had written her a letter? It meant nothing. 
Why shouldn't Richard be pleased? He was always pleased when someone showed her kindness. He was her dear friend, and no one nor anything could make him less. Neither death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature should separate them. She had an ear for the majestic phraseology of the Bible, independent of its connotation. In the fragment which had lingered from last night's prayers, she had failed to note that it was the love of God from which she was promised no separation, not the love of friend. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at valeriemoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, I'm Jack Hewson. I'm from Adelaide, Australia. I play Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Uh, you can find me at Jack in the Hat on Instagram um, or find my podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search up Tiger Phonics. That's T-I-G-E-R-F-O-N-I-X. And yeah, get in touch. See ya. Hello, my name is Joseph Moraney Jr., I'm the co-host of the Star Wars podcast, The Wars and More, and I voice Henry Shook. You can find me and my podcast over at thewarsandmore.com. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan with two A's. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hey everybody, my name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I'm the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This, as well as the podcast Citizens of Azeroth. Hi, my name is Peggy Davis, and I'm the voice of Millie. I'm a retired teacher. My husband and I just moved from California to Missouri a few weeks ago, and we're still in the process of finding a home and trying to get settled in. You can find me on Facebook as Peggy Davis Franco. Hi, my name is Zane Telch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, and I'm the voice of Ricky. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. 
I'm afraid you'll find it pretty warm this time of year. His brother gave him oblique look, which oddly Richard felt called upon to answer. I'm going for the purpose of giving the children an outing. Don't look so concerned, Mr. Tomlinson. I'm not too impoverished to treat the children to ice cream. Besides, this is a special occasion. They stood in silence while Mrs. Pruitt beamed and congratulated and crumpled an overdue board bill in her pocket. Then Nancy found voice and began gurgling. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, r 57 9915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.